Chapter the Eleventh of the Manchester Man by Mrs. G. Linnaeus Banks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Blue Coat Boy. Those were rough days when an occasional brawl was supposed essential to test the mettle of man or boy, so that bruises and black eyes, the result of an encounter for the honour of the school, were passed over with much lighter penalties than would be dealt out nowadays if young gentlemen in a public academy descended to blackguardism. At that time, too, the pupils of the grammar school assembled at seven in the morning, and sure punishment awaited the laggard who failed to present himself for prayers. There were few loiterers on that drear October morning. Conscience, and perhaps a dread of consequences, had kept the preceding day's war party sufficiently awake, even where sore limbs did not. But with the exception of a few smart raps with the ferule to warm cold fingers, and a general admonition, little heeded, the early hours of the morning passed quietly enough, more congratulatory than prophetic. That day went by, and the next. Lawrence Aspinall, whose science had saved his head for more damage than a cut lip, was especially boastful, and after his own underhand fashion strove to stir Big Ben Travis to fresh demonstrations. Then a cloud loomed in the horizon, and darkened every master's brow, Another whisper was in circulation that Governor Terry had been seen to enter the headmaster's ancient black-and-white house, and had been closeted with Dr. Smith for more than an hour. Still the quiet was unbroken, and to the wise the very calm was ominous. The 2nd of November brought a revelation. On the slightly raised floor of the high school, at the millgate end of the room, sat not only Dr. Jeremiah Smith, but the trustees of the school, the Reverend Joshua Brooks, and the assistant masters, and with them was Governor Terry of the Chetham Hospital, all grave and stern. Dr. Smith's mild face was unusually severe, and Joshua's shaggy brows lowered menacingly over his angry eyes. The senior pupils, chiefly young men preparing for college, were ranged on either side. As the last of these awful personages filed in through the two-leaved door and took his place, the palpitating hearts of the delinquents beat audibly, and courage oozed from many a clammy palm. The boys were summoned from the lower school, and one by one, name by name, Ben Travis and his followers were called to take their stand before this formidable tribunal, Lawrence Aspinall shrinking edgeways, as if to screen himself from observation. There was little need for Dr. Smith to strike his ferule on the table, to command attention, Silence was so profound. Even nervous feet forgot to shuffle. Dr. Smith's commanding eye swept the trembling rank from end to end, as he stood with impressive dignity to address them. After a brief exordium, in which he recounted the several charges brought against the boys by Governor Terry, he proceeded to say that the good character of the Manchester Grammar School was imperilled by lawless conduct such as the boys before him, had exhibited the previous Tuesday, in forcibly entering and then rioting within the college yard. One of the youths, most likely Ben Travis, blurted forth that they had a right to go through the college yard, and that the college boys stopped them. "'You mistake,' said the doctor sternly. "'There is no public right of road through the college yard. 
Permission is courteously granted, but there is no right. There is a right for the public to pass to and from the college and its library on business, within the hours the gates are open, but even that must be in order and decency. Your conduct was that of barbarians, not gentlemen. At this point of the proceedings, Jabez Clegg came into the schoolroom, leaning on the arm of George Pilkington. The face of the latter was bruised and swollen, but Jabez looked deplorable. His long blue overcoat was rent in more than one place. He walked with a limp. A white bandage round his head made his white face whiter still, showing more distinctly the livid and discoloured patches under the half-closed eyes. In obedience to a nod from Governor Terry, George Pilkington led his blue-coat brother to a seat beside him. But Dr. Smith, drawing the boy gently to his side, removed the bandage and showed Jabez to the school, with one deeply cut eyebrow plastered up. "'What boy among you has been guilty of this outrage?' he asked sternly. There was no answer. Some of the little ones took out their handkerchiefs and began to whimper, fearing condign punishment. The doctor repeated his question. The boys looked from one to another, but there was still no reply. Lawrence Aspinall edged farther behind his coadjutor, but he had not the manliness either to confess or regret. His only fear was detection or betrayal by a traitor. There was little fear of that. Grammar school boys have a detestation of a sneak. "'Boys, we cannot permit the perpetrator of such an outrage to remain in your midst. He must be expelled.' Still no one spoke. "'Do you think you could recognise your assailant, the boy who kicked you after you were down?' A murmur ran round the school as the classes were ordered to defile slowly past Dr. Smith's desk. Ben Travis walked with his head erect. He would have scorned such a deed, and Lawrence tried to do the same, but his cruel blue eyes could not meet those of his possible accuser. There was a struggle going on in the heart of Jabez. It was in his power to revenge himself for many taunts and sarcasms and much previous abuse. He called to mind, for thought is swift, that Shrove Tuesday when Lawrence and his friends caught him as he descended Mrs. Clue's steps with a pennyworth of humbugs in his hand, and snatching his cap from his head, kicked it about Half Street and the churchyard as a football, and he seemed to feel again the twitch at his dark hair, and the dreadful pain in his spine and loins as they bent him backwards over the coping of the low wall, in order to wrest his sweets from him, and held him there perforce till stout Mrs. Clues, armed with a rolling-pin, came to his rescue, laying about her vigorously, and kept him in her back parlour until he revived. Forgive and forget are words for the angels, and Jabez was not an angel, but a boy with quick beating pulses and a vivid memory. There was a fight going on in his breast, fiercer than either that in Half Street or that in the college yard. His sore stiff limbs and smarting brow urged him like voices to pay him off for all, and revenge began to have a sweet savour in his mouth. As he hesitated, watching the slow approach of his foe among his nobler mates, a harsh voice behind him called out, "'Jabez, why do you not answer, Dr. Smith?' The emphasis Joshua Brooks had laid upon the Jabez recalled the boy's better self. 
The oft-repeated text flashed across his mind. Jabez was an honourable man, and it shaped his reply. Well, sir, it was almost dark, and... and... He was going to add too dark to distinguish features, but he recollected that that would be a falsehood, and lying was no more honourable than malice. And you could not recognise him, you mean? suggested Dr. Smith. His lip quivered. No, sir, I, I, I do not mean that. It was very dark, but I think I should know him again, but... but, oh, if you please, sir, I should not like to turn him out of school. You see, we were all fighting together, and we were all in a passion, and... and it would be very mean of me to turn him out of school because he hurt me in a fight. Jabez did not say a fair fight. Ah, said Dr. Smith, and turning to Mr. Terry, asked, Are all the Chatham lads reared on the same principle? Then there was a low-voiced discussion amongst trustees and masters. Finally, Dr. Smith turned round. His clear eye had detected the culprit as he winced beneath the gaze of Jabez, but the injured boy had forgiven, and it was not for him to condemn. Again he spoke, proclaimed how Jabez had magnanimously declined to single out his cowardly antagonist, and that the boy, whoever he might be, had to thank his most honourable victim that he was not ignominiously expelled. Then, quietly but emphatically, he pronounced the decision of the trustees that instant expulsion should follow any or every repetition of the offence which had called them together, not only the expulsion of the ringleaders, but of all concerned, and that even a fair fight between a grammar school and a blue-coat boy should be visited with suspension pending inquiry, the offender to be expelled, whether from school or college. "'Good lad, Jabez, good lad,' said Joshua Brooks to him, as George Pilkington helped his limping steps from the room. On the broad flat step outside the door, they encountered Big Ben Travis, who caught the hand of Jabez in a rough grip, with the exclamation, "'Give us your fist, my young buck!' You've more pluck in your finger than that carroty Aspinall has in his whole carcass, the mean cur. And look you, my lad, if any of them set on you again, I'll stand by and see fair play, or I'll fight for you if it's a big chap, and my name's not Ben Travis. Who talks of fighting? Haven't you had enough for one while, you great raw-boned brute? You'd better keep your ready fists in your pocket, Travis, if you don't want to be kicked out of school after which gruff reminder Joshua left them, and Jabez went back to the college with one more friend in the world. But that friend was not Lawrence Aspinall. He, smarting under a sense of obligation, shrunk away to bite his nails and vent his spleen in private, conscious that he was shunned by his classmates and despised by honest Ben Travis. As months and seasons sped onwards, they plucked the hairs from Simon Clegg's crown, and left a bald patch to tell of care or coming age. They stole the roundness from Bessie's figure, the hope from her heart and eyes. There was less vigour in the beat of her batting wand, less elasticity in her step. The periodical holidays and cheering visits of Jabez were the only pleasant breaks in the monotonous life of the Cleggs beyond the knowledge obtained at the billeting office in King Street that Tom Hume had entered the army and gone abroad with his regiment, no tidings of the self-exiled soldier had come to them. 
In the great vortex of war, his name had been swallowed up and lost. But she never said I to Matthew Cooper, though he waited and waited, smoking his Sunday pipe by the fireside, even till his own Molly was old enough to have a sweetheart, and to want to leave her father's crowded hearth for a quieter one of her own. Those same months and years added alike to the stature and attainments of Jabez Clegg and Lawrence Aspinall, though in very unequal ratio. The former, though he had long since astonished Simon with his fluent rendering of the big Bible, was but a plodding scholar of average ability, the range of whose studies was limited, notwithstanding Parson Joshua's voluntary Latin lessons. The latter had an aptitude for learning, which made his masters press him forward, and Joshua Brooks forgave the tricks he played, his translations were so clear and so correct. Yet, when he wrote stinging couplets, or St. Crispin on the parson's door, or put cobbler's wax on the pedagogue's chair, the covert reference to his parentage stung the irascible man more than the damage to Kersimir, and in his wrath he birched his pupil into penitence. His penitence took a peculiar form. A discovery was made that a general dance in the schoolroom would shake the pewter platters and crockery down from dresser and corner cupboard in Joshua's house adjoining. Whenever the dominie had growled over bad lessons with least cause, Lawrence was sure to propose a grand hornpipe after school hours. Back would rush Joshua, fast as his short legs would carry him, spluttering with passion. But the nimbler lads disappeared when they heard the crash, and as a rule Joshua's temper cooled before morning. Lawrence Aspinall's chief source of amusement from his first entrance into the grammar school had been the crippled father of Joshua Brooks. As the old fellow staggered home drunk, the street boys would hoot at him, pull him about, pelt him with mud, and mock at him till his impotent fury found vent in a storm of vile and opprobrious language. Lawrence was sure to enjoy a scene of this kind, but he was generally sly enough to act as a prompter, not as principal. The old man was a great angler, and that he might enjoy unmolested his favourite pastime, his son had obtained from Colonel Hansom permission for him to fish in Strangeways Park Ponds. Thither he had an empty hogshead conveyed, and the crippled old cobbler, with a flask of rum for company, sat within it, often the night through to catch fish. The Irk had not then lost its repute for fine eels, and old Brooks, who, by the way, wore his hair in a pigtail, was likewise wont to plant himself with rod and line on what was the Waterworth field on the Irwell side of Irk Bridge to catch eels. Returning one afternoon, Joshua was busied with clerical duties. Lawrence Aspinall and his fellows met the old man, staggering along with his rod over his shoulder and a basket of eels in one hand. He had called at the pack-horse for a dram, and went on, as was his wont, talking noisily to himself. He had steered round the corner in safety, but hearing one lively voice call out, "'Here's old fish-tail!' and another, "'Here's St. Crispin's cripple!' and a third, "'Make way for Diogenes!' as he was passing the high master's ancient house, he gave a lurch, meaning to reprove them solemnly. The top of his rod caught in the prominent pillar of the doorway, and was torn from his insecure grasp. Striving to recover it, he pitched forward, and in falling, dropped his basket in the mud, 
and set the writhing long-lived fish at liberty to swim in the gutter swollen with recent rain. The lounging lads at once set up a shout, but Lawrence, with a timely recollection that the front of Dr. Smith's was scarcely the most convenient place for his purpose, winked at his companions, and with an aspect of mock commiseration, politely assisted the old man to rise, begged the others to capture the eels and carry the basket for him, and under pretence of putting the angler's rod in order, contrived to fasten the hook at the end of his old-fashioned pigtail. Then he helped his unsteady steps until they were fairly out of Dr. Smith's sight and hearing, but they did not suffer him to reach his son's house before they showed their true colours. Loosing his hold, Lawrence snatched at the rod, and darting with it towards the college gate, cried out in high glee, "'I've been fishing! Look at the fine snig I've caught!' And as he capered about, he dragged the poor old cripple hither and thither, backwards by his pigtail, to which hook and line were attached. Old Brook screamed in impotent rage and pain. The boys laughed and shouted the louder. The one with his basket set it on his head, and paraded about, crying, "'Who'll buy my snigs? Fine fresh snigs!' with the nasal drawl of a genuine fish-seller. Once or twice the old man fell down, uttering awful threats and imprecations, but Lawrence only laughed the more, and jerked him up again with a smart twitch of the line, which was a strong one, and the other three or four young ruffians put up their shoulders and limped about, singing, The fishes drink water, old Crispin drinks gin, but the fishes come out when the hook he throws in. Told her all. It may be wondered that none of the neighbours interfered, but it must be remembered that they were accustomed, not only to the uproar of a boyish multitude, but to the drunken ravings of old Brooks, who was an intolerable nuisance. Public traffic then was not as now, and policemen were unborn. The satisfaction of Lawrence was at its height. He kept hold of the line. One of his comrades, named Barrett, lashed the persecuted man with an eel for a whip, and their mirth was boisterous when Jabez, now thirteen, came quietly through the wicket on an errand from the governor. He took in the scene at a glance. He could not stand by and see injustice done. His dark eyes flashed with indignation as he dashed forward, pulling the line from the hand of Lawrence, and tried to disentangle the cruel hook from the unfortunate pigtail. "'Who asked you to interfere, you petticoated jackanapes?' bawled Lawrence, darting forward, his face as red as his hair, at the same time dealing Jabez a heavy blow on the chest. "'My duty,' answered Jabez, stoutly, taking no notice of the sneer at himself. "'How could you gentlemen torment a poor old cripple like that?' "'He's a drunken old sot,' cried Barrett. "'It's downright cruel,' continued Jabez, as he stood between the jabbering drunkard and his tormentors. "'We're no more cruel than he is. He's been catching fishes all day. We've only given him a taste of his own hook, and we'll have none of your meddling.' and out went the pugilistic arm of Lawrence straight from the shoulder to deal another blow, when it was caught from behind by the bony hand of Ben Travis, bigger and stronger by two years' growth, while the other hand gripped his jacket collar. "'So you're at your cowardly tricks again, Aspinall,' exclaimed he, holding the other as if in a vice. "'But if I see you lay another finger on that lad, I'll report you to Dr. Smith.' 
Oh, you'd turn sneak, would you? sneered Lawrence, striving to twist himself loose, and disordering his broad white frill in the endeavour. I'd think I did the grammar school a service to turn either you or Barrett out of it. I would. Think of you setting on that noble chap who wouldn't turn tell-tale, though he'll carry the mark of your boot to his grave with him. Pointing with outstretched hand to Jabez, who by this time was handing old Brooks over to the grumbling care of Tabitha, and whose right eyebrow yet showed a red seam. Travis relaxed his hold of Lawrence, and he shook himself free. Some warm altercation followed. There was a scowl of sullen defiance on Aspinall's face, and an evil glance towards Jabez, which Travis, observing, with a significant nod, he linked his arm in that of the blue-coat boy, and never left him till he reached his destination. Mr. Hyde's ancient and picturesque tea-shop, in Market Street Lane. Yet it meant a detour by Cateaton Street to leave an important note from Dr. Stone at the shop of Ford, the dealer in rare books, and a stretch up Smithy Door to the marketplace, where the office of Harrop the printer confronted them, and the trusty messenger had to wait. End of chapter the 11th